0: All right, uh, welcome everyone to Heartland History, uh, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I am Camden Bird, uh, Assistant Professor of History at Eastern Illinois University, and I am joined today by my friend, uh, Ramya. Ramya, who are you and how are you?
1: Um, I'm well, just finishing the semester. Um, I am Ramya, um, an Assistant Professor at Grand Valley State, um, and I'm really excited for our conversation with Dr. Fernandez Jones.
0: Me too. Me too. And we have, uh, you know, it was funny uh, as we were having this conversation with her. I realized as I was re-listening to the audio, um, there's a lot of Grand Rapids talking here. But I think yeah. it's important. I mean, the members who have been to Grand Rapids for the conference are well versed. And I was like, I think we really just need a walking tour of Grand Rapids after. Yes. This yes. Right. Yes. Will you? Will you yeah. yeah. We'll we'll sign you up for that. Right.
1: Yes. yes. Um, I, I think of that often in terms of, you know, just rethinking uh, our conversation
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with Dr. Fernandez Jones, just um, oftentimes when I'm driving through Grand Rapids, I think of some of the stuff that she's written mm-hmm. about. And I'm like, mm-hmm. hmm, we should, we should have something.
0: Yes. And, and um, uh, for the listeners, uh, Dr. Fernandez Jones is an assistant professor of history at Michigan State University. Uh, she's a core faculty member of the Chicano Latino studies program and the director of the Women of Color Initiatives. She was born and raised in Grand Rapids, which perhaps explains, you know, her focus, but also our interests in this as well. Uh, and, and she was raised among a large and tight knit Mexican and Puerto Rican community, uh, which will come through in the conversation as well. Drawing on her lived experiences as a Latina in Michigan and an extensive primary source research her work centers on Latino placemaking in the Midwest. Um, and she's particularly interested in how this population transformed the places they live in to suit their political, economic, and social needs. Uh, she has two award-winning articles on Latinos in Michigan. Uh, and just for clarity in this, this conversation here, uh, Ramya and I uh, first encountered, or maybe not first encountered, we, the, the the piece that we encountered to invite Dr. Fernandez-Jones into the po- uh, podcast was a piece that she wrote In a edited collection from University of Illinois Press titled Building Sustainable Worlds, Latinx Placemaking in the Midwest. Uh, But Dr. Fernandez Jones, of course, will talk quite a bit about her upcoming book project, which is titled Making the Mexican City, Mexican and Puerto Rican Migration, Placemaking and Activism in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which will be out in February.
1: Yeah, and in March of 2023, she's actually going to be coming to GVSU to give a talk. Oh, nice. Uh, and we're expecting a full house.
0: That'll be great. That'll be great. Um, y- You know, just a few things. I mean, obviously, we talked about sort of the significance of Grand Rapids here and the centrality of that to the story. You can tell by the title of her book project. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I mean, for me, there was several takeaways that I really enjoyed from this conversation. It's a, it's a long conversation, but I think it's a really fruitful conversation. Um. I, I particularly liked in both her essay, but in the conversation we had, she spends a great deal of time talking about the the troubles, but also the opportunities of sources in, in mm-hmm. trying to recover the stories of populations, particularly Mexican and, and Puerto Rican communities, uh, especially in communities that... A, might not have sort of the most robust historical records Uh to begin with, but also uh, communities that don't have initially sort of these robust populations that document the history. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation about how you go about um, starting these sort of history projects, So I think will be interesting to our listeners that sort of transcend the immediacy of this particular research, but thinking about historical research and, and sort of diving deeper into Midwestern history going forward.
1: Yeah, I think, like, a a few things struck out to me, especially when she's talking about sources. I I remember her talking about going to the public library um, and having prisoner records Mm -hmm. as a great way to sort of begin thinking about who was getting in, like, who was being taken in, Mm -hmm. persons, Mm -hmm. Um, and just sort of the, her struggles point to a, a, An interesting and I think robust methodology of like how do you do local history Mm -hmm. Um, especially for all those uh, communities that we don't that we may not have necessarily associated with the Midwest right Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because we've all been here for a while Mm -hmm. Um, and and I thought like especially for budding historians um, that conversation about um, that part of the conversation about how do you find archival material what do you consider even archival material and how do you sort Mm -hmm. of triangulate was really important um as somebody who was trained as a journalist before i did anything in history um methodology was always something that i wasn't sort of i always felt that i didn't know enough but turns Mm -hmm. out that journalists and historians share a lot of commonalities Mm -hmm. in the ways in which we approach how we write and what we write about Mm -hmm. um and, and I think what really stood out to me about the conversation on sources was also being cognizant and in, in some sense of celebrating our own possessionality um, mm-hmm. as researchers, but also as people. Because um, in the article, um, you know, she sort of begins by talking about her own family and, you know, um, backyard celebrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are not just like Sharing sharing that uh, a researcher is doing, but also gives you a vantage point to understand the the method methodological choices this person makes, and mm-hmm. these are very important things that we begin to talk about more mm-hmm. openly. Because um, as we know, archives are not neutral. You know, our yeah. subjectivity is important to put out there. It doesn't make our scholarship any less robust or important or revolutionary.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we need to own it a little. Um, that's what I took out of the conversation. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And and as somebody who's also moved recently to Grand Rapids, I just thought the just how um, centered this was on the city. But mm-hmm. like it gave me uh, an interesting mental map um, of the places that she was talking about, um, and that really like for somebody who's new to Grand Rapids, some of the issues that we may not have talked about, but now are important city when it comes to like um, gentrification, things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, This is sort of, this lays out the antecedents to that. And Mm -hmm. you begin to see, okay, this whole like continuous flux and contestation that's been going on for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make any answers easy, which is fine. Uh, But at least offers, I think, a history of Grand Rapids that moves beyond what we can think of in terms of beer capital or whatever hell, you know, whatever. I've lived (laughs) in Michigan now eight years. And I don't think I, I mean, yes, I didn't know much about Grand Rapids, but also like it's in reading stories like this that I feel I get to know a city better.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Um, totally agree. I mean, I grew up in Grand Rapids my whole life and and, and much of this history is new to me, but also, yeah, to your point, like there's a, um, a connective thread that, you know, the, the, the topic of this immediate research is, is, Really, this uh, you know, a handful of decades after, you know, the post-war period for the most part. But like you see the evidence of that history in those conversations that are playing out today, um, which means, of course, that the history is is with us on, uh, mm-hmm. on a regular basis. So, yeah, I really appreciate that part of the conversation as well. Yeah. Um, and now,
1: like driving yeah. by Ramsey Park, I always think of like Dr. Fernandez Jones. And I'm like, wait, she's talking about that? <laughs> um, but yeah,
0: there you go. Um, a few housekeeping items
1: the call for proposals for the Midwestern History Association conference which will be from May 18th to 19th in Grand Rapids is up and about um, and the deadline is in early January so please consider applying
0: yeah you can find the the the, the CFP on um, on the association's webpage midwesternhistory.com yes. um, but of course yeah check that out that's in your backyard and Again, appropriate for this conversation today.
1: Perfect for this conversation, and yeah, please do come hang out with us.
0: Yeah, I need we need more. I need more friends. I don't want to speak for you, Rami. I have not. <laughs> I do. So. I do okay. too. <laughs> um, and then, lastly, I, of course, just want to continue to thank uh, Steve Leaf, also a musician from Grand Rapids. I mean, this is this is coming up. We probably lost so many listeners already because we spent too much time <laughs> on this. Um, but uh, a special thanks to Steve Leaf for lending us um, the music for this podcast. Thank you, Steve. All right. Well, shall we jump into it? Yes. Uh, Well, Dr. Fernandez-Jones, thank you so much for joining us here today on Heartland History.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, We're so excited. Um, I'm excited to talk about this essay um, that you know, that we have all read and and prepared to talk about today. Um, And what I love about this essay, I mean, other than the fact that all three of us here have connections to Grand Rapids, Michigan. So this is a clearly biased pick. But, uh, you know, your history, your personal story comes through in this particular essay. Um, You you know, the essay begins with this great anecdote that you have to explore uh, Mexican uh, placemaking. Uh, I wonder if you could talk more about your personal story and how it informs your essay and larger research.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I'm part of a generation of scholars that is not afraid to embrace this idea of research is me-search. I came up with a number of uh, wonderful mentors who encouraged me to research Grand Rapids uh, because I have such an intimate relationship with it, but also because I have access to stories and sources that an outside researcher might not have. Um, I think oftentimes, People of color, scholars of color who research their own communities sometimes get lobbied. Um, There's critique that they are not biased enough. And it's not a critique that we uh, lobby back at our, our white uh, counterparts, our white colleagues, when they study white folks. And so it, this is something that is uh, very personal to me, but also very grounded in Uh, you know, rigorous scholarship and, and research. So I got on the path of studying Grand Rapids because I just simply wanted to read about Mexicans and Puerto Ricans living in a place together. As a graduate student, I was excited that I could finally read about Latino history all I wanted. Um, and so I, I went to the library and I started looking and I found a lot of histories on Mexicans in the Southwest and a lot of histories on Puerto Ricans in the Northeast and kind of not too much happening in the middle that looked at both Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, uh, save for my advisor. My advisor in graduate school is Dr. Lilia Fernandez. And while I, when I was starting as a graduate school, she was uh, wrapping up her book, Brown in the Windy City which is one of the first books that looks really uh, seriously at Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and the place that they occupy in the urban North. And so I wanted to do more of that. I wanted to, I really just wanted to understand where my family fit in the larger context of this or where we were unique, where we uh, very different. It was also becoming really apparent to me to People outside of the Midwest, that Mexicans and Mexican and Puerto Rican communities were not necessarily common. So I would meet folks from um, the Southwest who were, you know, Latinx, Chicano, Chicanex, and they would say, um, You're Mexican? Well, how did that happen? And I was taken aback. Like, what do you mean? How did that happen? And uh, maybe you should meet my parents. I don't know what to tell you there. Um, but I learned that I had to kind of um, explain the Midwest to just, you know, other scholars. Oftentimes it wasn't just people that I was meeting through like personal connections. It was in an academic setting where that it just seemed unconceivable that Mexicans and Puerto Ricans um, coexisted and as early as the time period that I am interested in. And so I, I started down the path because I, I wanted to find that out and I wrote a I wrote a seminar paper on migration uh, Mexican and Puerto Rican to Michigan kind of uh, kind of taking down a labor track and I, then I wrote another one on Grand Rapids this with Was the basis of my first article, some of which information is in this um, chapter. And I talked to one of my advisors, um, Dr. Kevin Boyle, who advised me to keep going with Grand Rapids because I was really um, hesitant. I was like, maybe I should do like the straight up labor history. Um, That's, I was really interested in it. But I I like Grand Rapids, but the idea of doing the study, but I thought, you know, who would really care about Grand Rapids? In graduate school, you're always plagued with that question, you know, why is Grand Rapids important? Why is your area of study so important? And it's often uh, vis-a-vis, you know, but look at this text on California that's so transformative. And, you know, I had to learn to say, you know, the same way that California can say, a a, a case study on California can be relevant to the nation, so too can Grand Rapids. And so I was really encouraged by um, a couple of advisors and personal experiences to look into this history in a real formal way.
1: So in order, like... Based on this, there are two things that strike me, and this is something Camden and I talked about earlier, um, you sort of talked about, you know, getting people to think about where Mexicans and Puerto Ricans live in the Midwest, right? So my question, I guess, preempting a, a later question is, where is the Midwest? Like, what is the Midwest to you?
2: Yes. This is a great debate among the Midwest history scholars. Uh, So in my reference, I'm using, I'm generally using the Midwest as like Great Lakes State region. So Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, that's the part that I'm using it. But I'm very much a part of other Midwest Latinx scholars who uh, also see it as, you know, if we get as far south as you know, Kansas, maybe even Nebraska, as far west as Missouri. Um, I feel like as far north I could go as Minnesota, but there is, you know, some debate on, okay, what about the Dakotas? But to me, the Dakotas feel like the Mountain West. I feel like there's a a shift, but part of the way that I define it comes with a very traditional way of kind of the uh, Rust Belt legacy area um, and it's really because it's that type of um, kind of rust belt industry in combination with agriculture that brings the folks that I'm talking about to the region okay that that makes sense to me
1: <laughs> um, And to like set up our discussion further I was wondering if you could sort of provide our listeners with a brief overview of Puerto Rican and Mexican like, like migration to the west to West Michigan.
2: Yes, of course. So I think one thing to know about just in general is that Mexicans and Puerto Ricans um, are just Latinos more broadly have been in Michigan for over 100 years. And I think that's something that gets lost when we think about them as new immigrants or perpetually new immigrants. But as early as the turn of the century into like World War I, the United States recruited Mexicans to work in agricultural fields due to labor shortages, and this includes Michigan. Um, In the 1920s, we see uh, uh, the Ford Ford Company uh, recruiting really high-skilled, quote-unquote, workers from Mexico uh, to come to the factories and work there. But also you see We've seen at this time agricultural uh, companies in Michigan, many of the in the sugar beet industry, they started to send uh, recruiters to San Antonio, Texas, and to areas kind of south of San Antonio. Or they would contract recruiters, local recruiters, to mm-hmm. bring uh, Mexicans and Mexican Americans up to Michigan. So they've been there at least since the 1920s in in terms of forming communities around uh, the state just outside not just outside of Detroit in World War two uh, Michigan started to recruit many more workers to come on agricultural fields, given the shift again in labor. So with many uh, folks who were considered white at the time, moving into higher positions in industry or moving off to the war, we had shortages um, all around. And so some Mexican and Mexican-Americans were able to get into industry, a few of them, not too many, um, but a few of them. And there was a resulting shortage uh, on agricultural fields. So Michigan companies in concert with Michigan politicians and uh, politicians in Puerto Rico all kind of worked together to bring uh, Puerto Ricans to Michigan fields. And so it started really in the thumb region and they moved outward uh, really across the state and across the country. Uh, Many uh, Mexicans were also there, Mexican-Americans. Uh, started to come from different regions or just more Mexicans and Mexican-Americans started to come. And so that's how they kind of converge all into the same place. And a lot of that started in the thumb region, as I said. Mm-hmm. But many of those workers found really horrible working conditions. One Puerto Rican man uh, likened, that to, uh, likened the conditions to slavery in the 20th, uh, the 20th century under the American flag, as a, almost a quote there, almost a direct quote there. And this led many folks, uh, many Puerto Ricans, to leave Michigan. Um, they are citizens. They were contracted because they were citizens, but also because of their agricultural experience and their desperate need for work given the Great Depression. And so some of them left to New York where many folks had contacts. It was the kind of the epicenter of the Puerto Rican diaspora at the time, but others left to Cleveland, to Chicago, and some went around the state, including the folks that end up in Grand Rapids. And Mexicans as well uh, were starting to come directly to West Michigan and to do agricultural work. They really had been doing that in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but more were coming after uh, the post-World War II period.
0: Uh, what, I, what I love about this essay, and again, maybe because I'm invested in sort of this Grand Rapids history, although all members of the Midwestern History Association, the Midwestern history Association will be invested in, in this research because many of them go to the annual conference in Grand Rapids mm-hmm. every year. Um, and so I, I, I thought it was really interesting how you get into sort of the, the nooks and cranny of the geography of Grand Rapids um, and, and where many of the, the Mexican and Puerto Rican Im- migrants are, in fact, settling in Grand Rapids. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the spaces, uh, sort of the geography of Grand Rapids, where where these communities are starting to form. Um, but I'd also be interested if you could talk a little bit about Grand Rapids of the 1940s and 1950s. Um, how are Grand Rapidians responding to the arrival of Mexican and Puerto Rican immigrants uh, and migrants? And And how do those interactions also start to shape this community uh, and the community building between Mexican and Puerto Rican uh, um, Grand Rapids residents?
2: Great questions. Uh, If it's okay, I'm going to take the first or the second one first. We'll talk about Grand Rapids. We'll talk about residential patterns, and then we'll talk about the, uh, the rest of the welcome that they received when they got there. Perfect. So... I think for many people, Grand Rapids is very emblematic of the rest of the Midwest in a lot of ways. It has kind of the, in the 1940s and 50s, it has a very urban North uh, geography. It's an urban center. It's a, There's a various racial groups all converging into one area. And that way it is very much like uh, Maybe Indianapolis, maybe smaller versions, of course, of Detroit, Chicago. They have some of those same type of characteristics. But I think what sets Grand Rapids apart and maybe puts it in this other category is it also kind of has maybe a small town feel in that religion plays a really important part in social norms and determining the social norms for the city. So, I talk a lot in the inter, or a little bit in that essay and in the larger book project about uh, the role that the Christian Reformed Church plays in Grand Rapids. And I think this is something that's maybe more broadly applicable to West Michigan, Holland, Zealand, those areas as well. But the difference is you see this overlaid on a real urban center that has industry, Mm -hmm. that has kind of all of the issues that urban centers have in the 40s, the 50s, and moving forward. And so there's a lot of respectability politics at play. Other scholars, Randall Jelks and um, Todd Robinson, both talk about the role that respectability politics play in African-Americans' relationship with Grand Rapids, where folks have to, Black folks have to assume this uh, political stance as to try not to offend white folks and to, uh, to kind of reform themselves to meet the social norms of the city. And I think that this, this uh, many of the kind of religious values in social norms that we see in the Christian Reformed Church that related to kind of modesty and piety, um, hardworking, thrifty, all of these things that we associate with that community also have these they, they dovetail really clearly with racial sentiments of the 1940s and 50s as well. Mm-hmm. And so the if the idea is that the Dutch, much like many of the other European immigrants in Grand Rapids, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and just worked hard for what they had, uh, that really fits with kind of some of the ideals in the Christian Reformed Church that tell them that they are a hardworking people. They've been rewarded for this. Uh, But it also then makes it really easy to say Black folks, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, whoever else, are just not working hard enough, are just not as um, pious as they should be, are just not as modest as they should be. And any challenges to the social norms that are, you know, celebrating modesty are really seen as an affront to really the local social order. And so when Mexicans and Puerto Ricans get there, they've already uh, met Black folks are already there in larger numbers, and they've learned that they have to follow this uh, particular uh, schema that's been developed in, around respectability politics. When Mexicans and Puerto Ricans get there, they have decisions to make about, or you know, how will they fall in line with these respectability politics? And if they do challenge any of the social norms, that feels like an affront to like what it means to be a uh, Grand Rap- Rapidian, what it means to belong in Grand Rapids. And so that is kind of the Grand Rapids that they were in. And, and with that, uh, I talk a lot about in, in the book and in this, Um, article or this chapter about like, this is a urban center, but there's also churches on every black, like the same type you might see in a smaller area in the Midwest. And so you have these converging of places. And so that's why I think this is really, some of this is really applicable to many places across the Midwest. It's not just the urban centers, it's the smaller areas, it's places that have um, many different racial groups converging into one um, specific locale. And so when Mexicans and Puerto Ricans arrived in Grand Rapids, they found limited housing options. They were not as limited as their Black counterparts faced, uh, but they were still limited. And so I talk a little bit about more in depth in my book about um, the 1920s and 30s and the mixed race neighborhoods that Mexicans, Black Mm -hmm. folks and European immigrants all kind of occupied off of Granville Avenue, which is uh, just south of like Wealthy and Granville, um, that intersection there, that kind of southwest intersection uh, that's now really an industrial center. But there's still the train tracks that run through there. And those uh, right next to the train tracks were a lot of houses, boarding houses, dilapidated houses, um, probably the worst houses that the city had to offer at the time. But that's where like a, a house full of Mexican men were, was living. And it served as a, uh, as a stop for many Mexican families who were coming into town. In the 1940s and 50s and 60s, we start to see more shifts. Um, so in the forties where Mexicans and Puerto Ricans often are living alongside black folks on the Southeast side, there's still some white folks, poor white folks in there as well. Uh, but they're living right next to each other. The construction of us 131 also plays a role in kind of movements and shifting of neighborhoods because by the early 1960s, uh, many white folks are able to access the suburbs. You know, Wyoming is uh, starting to grow at that time. Uh, people can are working at GM. That's out there. More companies are heading out in that direction, and so Mexicans and some black folks are getting into an area still on the southwest side. That's kind of um, south of wealthy, off of Granville Avenue, going towards like the Clyde Park area, and so. I think uh, people traditionally call it like uh, Roosevelt Park. Uh, Many people in the study that I've done, you know, refer to it as Granville, just Granville Avenue, La Granville as well. But uh, many of those neighborhoods, when Mexicans and Puerto Ricans first tried to attempt to work there or to live there in the 40s, many of them were rejected. Um, They were not able to live in um, the areas, kind of uh, even more specifically south of Franklin. Um, those neighborhoods were really working class white neighborhoods. Uh, I talk a little bit about my grandparents' own experiences. We're a multiracial Puerto Rican family. My grandmother is very light, my grandfather was darker, um, probably Afro-indigenous in ancestry. And so when he um, they would go to find houses together, they were often turned away because of the anti-black bias that was so prevalent in Grand Rapids. And so my grandmother learned that if she took her brother, who was also light, and only her light-skinned children, she could get access to housing. It's uh, more easy than if she did it with her husband. And so they would repeat this until they were eventually able to own their home. Um, and this is something that's uh, really prevalent. So Afro-Puerto Ricans definitely received the same treatment as Black Grand. Uh, in terms of segregated housing, uh, racial slurs, the the full experience of racism in the urban North. Mexicans, uh, on the other hand, depending on what they look like, and this would have gone for light-skinned Puerto Ricans as well, um, command of English, accents, they might be able to get into certain places, um, especially if they were able to shed any other cultural markers. Uh, But we saw one example I used is of a man who... Bought a house on Tulip Avenue, which is off of Granville Avenue. That's right before Hall Street, or uh, right north of Hall Street. And wait, is it north, south? Sorry, south of Hall Street. Don't take away my Grand Rapids card. It's <laughs> the map, my map is fading. Um, but there was a a man who bought a house on Tulip, which is just north of Hall Street, and. Uh, He was Mexican American and he had real trouble trying to purchase the home. He had to get help from his employer who was a Dutch man to help negotiate the sale uh, of the house with the seller who was also Dutch. And he recalled it being months before people would talk to him. He even recalled a petition to get him out of the neighborhood uh, that went around as well. And so. The the housing options were really limited um, pre-1960s. By uh, mid-1950s, they start to open up a little. Uh, But I'm actually really excited because the census has been released. The 1950 census has been released. And so while I was writing this book, I only had access to the 1940 census. So I couldn't really see the street by street Mm -hmm. level of detail that I wanted to in the 1950s. Like I have that for the 1940s, but I had to kind of work with a lot of different sources to be able to make my best guess at what these neighborhoods racial composition look like and the shift. So I'm really excited to see what the 1950 census might tell us, what more nuanced information we might glean. But so that's housing. That's how housing worked. And then lastly, to talk about, you know, what was it like for those Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and how did people receive them? I think there was just plainly, there was a lot of confusion around who exactly Mexicans and Puerto Ricans were at the time. So even if they had been in the area, at least Mexicans working agriculture, many of them weren't occupying like urban space in a really, um, significant way until the 1940s. And Grand Rapids very much adhered to a black, white racial imaginary, which is something that also happened across the urban North, that there are just two races of people. You're either black or you're white. Um, and there might be some people who are in between, but they weren't quite sure where or how um, exactly people fit. And so that's what they often apply to Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. And one of the ways that I saw this was in jail records. This is kind of an Not a common source that historians often use, but uh, this was something that was suggested to me by the archivist at the time, Bill Cunningham. Uh, He was an archivist at in uh, for Grand Rapids for over thirty years, and when I went to talk to him about my project, you know, I am like, okay, so where are the sources on Latinos? Can if you could just hand me the boxes, that'd be great. And he's like, yeah, that's not how this works, and. Uh, We had a real hard time, you know, trying to come up with um, what type of sources the city might have kept that could tell me about this Mm -hmm. population. And he suggested jail records, that he had seen Spanish surnames in there before. And, you know, it's not, I like to mention to everybody that this is, I looked at jail records, not because of a proclivity to criminality among Mm -hmm. Mexicans, but just because there were not many uh, city level organizations or nonprofits, organizations, as we would call them now, paying attention to Mexicans or Puerto Ricans in the city. Mm-hmm. And so jail records are one of my first entries in, were one of my first entries into understanding their racial position in Michigan. And that's because jail records at the time asked for offenders, demographic information. So name, birthday, birth, uh, uh, residence, where you were born, could you read, were you married? All of those questions. But they also asked for color and complexion, which were fascinating because our our understanding of what we think of as race when we check boxes now is kind of the 1940s equivalent was color, hmm. where complexion was really a description of your complexion. And so... There is confusion where people aren't quite sure at, you know, down at um, the police department what they should write down for Mexicans. So we saw I, I saw records that had, you know, a Mexican man's color was white and his complexion was like cinnamon brown or a Mexican man's color was Mexican and his complexion was chestnut or dark chestnut,
0: mm-hmm. or
2: swarthy, or you know, all of these different ways of describing skin color, in addition to a very clear um, you know, confusion around what mm-hmm. race these people would have been classified as. And I saw similar patterns among census takers when they were uh, taking down information for Mexicans as well. And so I think confusion is part of it. But for most folks, it was really they were kind of understood very quickly that they were other, not black, not white, um, unless of course you were Afro Latino because there were folks there, and then they were in a whole other world of confusion of where they belonged in this uh, racial social hierarchy. Uh, but they were that they were other; they didn't uh, share many of the same, um, you know demographics as their white counterparts. Many of them were Catholic, they were, um, they spoke Spanish, they had these cultural markers that were different than their white counterparts.
1: Thank you, yeah. And, and as you sort of walk through these confusions, uh, you explore community building in a very thoughtful and engaging manner. So I was wondering what role um, religion and Catholicism uh, played in community building.
2: Yes. So, you know, religion is a cornerstone of the interactions for Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. This is something that, you know, all of our kind of social histories on Mexicans and Puerto Ricans uh, across the country confirm. Um, This is a a very common site to look at in terms of trying to understand community building and the placemaking as um, I'm also thinking about it in that way as well. And so, one thing i I do want to mention is that there are some protestants mexicans and puerto ricans and they undergo very similar patterns of community building they're much smaller in number but they don't necessarily get the attention in my book that um catholicism does um simply because of the available uh documents and uh size of the population those two things kind of went hand in hand Uh, but Many folks uh, went to the cathedral when they first arrived in Grand Rapids. For those who were Catholic, the cathedral would have been a very familiar place, the uh, Catholic Church, a very familiar institution, Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
2: considering if they were coming from Mexico or from Texas. And... It was very, uh, they, very quickly, many of the first community kind of pioneers our first people to settle and kind of assume leadership positions informally in the community set up a what they were calling a Mexican apostolate, which is um, a branch of outreach to Mexicans. They had other different types of apostolates at the time, but that was the way they described the, the outreach. Uh, Because most of the population in that early 1940s, early 1950s period were Mexican. And so they were kind of responsible. They took it upon themselves to, you know, retain, make sure they had uh, practices in place to retain uh, cultural elements of Mexican Catholicism or Mexican American Catholicism. It also served as a place for many Puerto Ricans who were Catholic. So when they first arrived to the city, many of them were um, kind of ushered in, if they went to the cathedral, shown the Mexican apostolate. And the name kind of kept it, uh, you know, they kept the name the Mexican apostolate for a really long time, um, until the 1970s when they changed it to the Hispanic apostolate. So it kind of shows this a little erasure of Puerto Ricans in that way. And mm-hmm. that, you know, Mexicans were at least a little bit more familiar to the diocese than Puerto Ricans were, even though as Puerto Ricans started to join, um, what was the, a later a chapel that the community made, Our Lady of Guadalupe Chapel, they took up positions of leadership, they contributed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a feeling among many of the Puerto Ricans who were there that in their own community leaders, for example, a man Dioniso, a man named Dionisio Berrios. Uh, he was a, a, a cantor, an elector at the Our Lady of uh, Guadalupe Chapel, and many Puerto Ricans felt that he did a really great job in making sure that Puerto Ricans were included in what was ever was happening at the church. So if there was a traditionally Mexican celebration, uh, Dionisio and others made sure that, okay, that our Puerto Ricans will also be involved in this and we'll try, you know, we'll do some of our own things, but those are much smaller because the community was, was much smaller as well. But the chapel and the Mexican apostolates, as it was called, served as a really um, unifying force for people because this is the one place where they can hear Spanish at church because uh, the diocese was able to get a couple Spanish-speaking priests. Um, none of them were latino none of the permanent priests were latino but that's also a very uh common phenomenon in the midwest as well that there was just a lack of latinos uh, spanish-speaking priests oftentimes they were eastern european who had learned spanish or other folks who had um, done studies to learn spanish and so it was one place that they could kind of Practice their cultural traditions. They could speak Spanish to one another, and then it also turns out, you know, that because the city is so small, they are neighbors with one another. The kids go to the same, many of the same Mm -hmm. schools. They work with one another, so it was really important in the fabric of uh, forming that first pan Latino community.
0: Well, you also track the importance of of leisure recreational space uh, as an important component of community building and placemaking uh, and perhaps you could talk a, a bit more about the importance of things like dance halls or yeah. you know going to f- watch films or sporting events how did that also build uh, this sense of community
2: yeah this was a really important part of the work that i do i talk a lot about you know oppression marginalization and being able to highlight leisure allows people to see our ancestors, um, these Latinos in these communities as full people right? They're not just laborers. They don't just go to church. They also, you know, living full lives was important to them. Mm -hmm. And leisure is central to that. And we know that by like all of our studies on labor history and working class histories point to leisure as this really great insight into how people separate themselves from being kind of robotic workers. Mm -hmm. And so, I wanted to I wanted to highlight that. and they were also a part of the like rich oral storytelling tradition that I'm a part of that I heard about. I heard about these dance halls. I heard about uh, baseball games. And in doing oral histories, I heard about a lot more different types of of recreational spaces. And so places like the Roma Hall have this really kind of, um, like they've taken on like a mythical proportion, as you know. Before I started the study, because that's where my parents uh, would go with their families and other, you know, it was other community members. Everybody, when they talked about the old times, it was Roma Hall. And so it was really great to ask other members of the community outside of my own, you know, immediate circle about it and have them recount the memories of coming together at the Roma Hall, this place that was really, had come to symbolize openness to other racial groups. So, uh, you know, Black performers were always at the Roma Hall because, as we know, Black folks are kind of leading popular culture, including music, so they were always performing, but they also... uh, it looks like they were also attending things there as well, and so that signals to folks that maybe Mexicans and Puerto Ricans might also be welcome. And they were. It's an Italian-owned business as well, so we see. Um, we I've also seen some, you know, some solidarity in kind of working class Italian um, uh, Italians with Mexicans and Puerto Ricans who are still living in the same neighborhood together, and so uh, the Roma Hall dances were this place where people could just relax a little and be safe. Like a lot of uh, the first interactions and the first parties and gatherings happened in living rooms. You know, that was when the communities were small enough to gather in one or two houses. That was really, um, you know, that was something that people talked fondly about. But by the time you got to Roma Hall, they have, a, you know, more of a organizational aspect to it where community organizations would sell tickets to these dances. They double as fundraisers. They're at the time, you know, they only had a couple of family bands who were coming in and playing. Um, and. Many, you know, Puerto Ricans recounted like, "Yo, now they couldn't play Puerto Rican music at all. Like we, you, the best they could do." Uh, one woman remembered is like, "Oh, they tried mambo once, and you know that wasn't bad." But what it did was it allowed Mexicans and Puerto Ricans to be in that space together. It showed Puerto, many Puerto Rican uh, men learned how to dance. Me- to Mexican music and those settings to be able to court Mexican women who were there. There's a bit of a gender imbalance in that first uh, first 10 or 15 years uh, when folks first got there. Um, it's also a place that families got together, that it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just like couples and young people, singles, uh, many oral history participants were called like, look, if your mom and dad were going, you were going too. there was none of this year. I'm going to stay home. You had to go to the dance too. And that's where people, those children learned dances. That's where they learned how to, um, to maintain their cultural traditions and practices. They learned, uh, Otherwise, they learned that there, and it's a place that was really important because there wasn't a lot of opportunities to learn and to practice those cultural traditions outside of those spaces. It wasn't like they were in Texas where that type of dancing might be everywhere, right? You have festivals that celebrate uh, types of conjunto music and all these things in those places. So it was really, really important uh, for people to come together there. And then the other places like uh, baseball fields and movies, those I found really fascinating as well because uh, there's not necessarily a lot of cultural traditions uh, that are getting passed down at those places, but it's kind of community building in this other way. Whereas Mm -hmm. baseball fields, like these are a pastime that a lot of different people play. Mexican and Puerto Ricans have a very long history playing baseball as well. Uh, But it was this one part where you could everybody kind of had a role to play at these baseball games. So a lot of times you have men who are playing, you have kids who are there playing with one another kind of off to the side or cheering on, you know, parents or fathers, brothers, uncles who are playing. Women are selling food. So everybody is playing this really integral role to making these community events really successful. And so that's another place where people get to learn about each other. These, the nuances in the style of baseball or the nuances in the, dialects of Spanish that are happening among Mexicans and Puerto Ricans because while everybody speaks Spanish it's not always the same Spanish and so those also get to happen there on on baseball fields and then movie theaters I also found those really fascinating because it's a respite from English so if you are a first uh, you are a native Spanish speaker living in Grand Rapids you hear English all day you can't help but hear English all day. It's likely within the privacy of your own home, your neighborhood, your church, that you might be able to hear Spanish, maybe at the Roma Hall. But if it's a random you know, weekend day and you want to hear some Spanish, you want to be kind of um, enveloped in hearing something that's familiar to you, it provides this little break for folks to go see a movie. And this also attracted Puerto Ricans who, again, might not speak the exact same dialect as many of the Mexican movies that they were playing. But it's that type of respite that energizes people, that, is a, that allows people to stay in Grand Rapids for long periods of time. I really think the leisure is central to that because if you don't get a chance to, you know, to express yourself, to be a whole human being and explore your desires and have fun, it makes it really hard to stay in a place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I just second that. I mean, I think that's what struck me about reading your piece was just sort of those. Human, you know, those human details that I think so many historians like Mm -hmm. leave out of the record, right? To, To remind us that you know the people that we study are in fact like human beings, yes. Um, but and also that many of those spaces are sort of new spaces for everyone coming together, and 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 that creates new community, um, and bonds that you know are sort of formed out of, yeah, like you know, because the movie is in Spanish, like that is that is a good tool and glue to bring this community together uh, in new and interesting ways. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk, I mean, you know, throughout this is this, this larger discussion, you've brought it up a few times now about working with historical sources uh, and and the troubles with that, right. You mentioned very early in the essay, and I really appreciate that you actually sort of, um, you know, take time to talk about this in your essay, right? The, the difficulties of finding uh, Latino histories in the archives, and, and the need to work creatively to recover mm-hmm. those stories, right? You talked about sort of reading jail records, uh, okay. sort of backwards, and, and working around those. I, I'm curious, you know, what difficulties did you encounter? Uh, you know, in addition to to some of what you've already talked about, uh, and and perhaps maybe like some tools and techniques that you've used or might adv- advise other historians who are interested in recovering these sorts of histories?
2: Yeah. So this, as I mentioned, it was really difficult in, in some places. So I think there was like a couple, of, a couple of spots where I would have a lot of sources and then a couple mm-hmm. of spots where I've had no sources. And mm-hmm. I'm, I was doing what felt like what we call like needle in a haystack type of work, <laughs> just looking for that one, just anything. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about, first I'll say a couple of places that had more, more and then I'll get to like all the rest. So one, the Grand Rapids Public Library has a like um, Hispanics in Western Michigan collection that uh, city historian Gordon Olson and many of his contemporaries contributed to in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They were very savvy to do interviews with some of those first Mexicans and Puerto Ricans who came to the city and uh, record them, transcribe them, and deposit them. And so I was very lucky to have access to people who had um, passed away. And, And in fact, I found my grandmother's transcript, her oral history there. Wow. And my grandma, while well, I started this project as a master you know, as a, a PhD in the PhD program, working on my master's paper, my on this topic, my grandmother was dying. And it was like, it was too far along for me to ask her any questions. And I was just really, you know, frustrated with myself that I'm like, how come I hadn't thought of this earlier? You know, and I'm like, of course, that would have been, you know, I could not have foreseen those events or had foreseen that this is where my trajectory was going. And so while home that summer kind of attending to. Um, my family, as we were you know, mourning my grandmother and all of this, I was also at the library working with Tim Gleisner, who was there, and Julie Tabor, her st- who's still there. And they showed me this collection and were able to bring out the recording of my grandmother's interview. And it was just, it was amazing. It was mm-hmm. amazing. They helped me to make copies of it. My parents came down to the library. Like, it was a really big deal. Um, for us, and so I'm very thankful for them because they they were able to do that preliminary work that was that would have been lost that would certainly been lost. And I mean, much there are obviously many more people. It would have been great to have them interviewed. We lost a lot in in getting to people um, kind of this late, but I'm thankful for the ones that they did because they really did hit a lot of the um, kind of leaders in the community, first people who were here. And so that was helpful. But everything else was kind of like, I just felt like I was going through so many different collections, just looking for a shred of Latino presence, that they were there. Because I knew they were there because of the oral histories, because of my family. I knew we were there. But how was I going to find text documents that did that? And so that was really hard. And so that my meetings with Bill Cunningham were really key. And my like, number one tip for uh, researchers is that archivist, you need to get to know that archivist. And I, yes. I mean, I quickly learned that Bill and his wife liked Wealthy Street Bakery. And I would come into the archive with some Wealthy Street Bakery snacks, and we would talk about everything, my project, what I'm thinking of. Bill had an interest in Latin America from his own studies, and that's when we started to really find these other um, documents. And so the jail records. There's one that's a little bit different. Uh, So the jail records are fingerprint cards that I've looked at. So cards that were filled out, fingerprints taken at the time of arrest. Then he has these arrest books that are kind of like a log, but they included Mm -hmm. photos. These The most pristine photos. They're kept in a book that is, I mean, you can't see my hands, but I swear it's like six to eight inches large. And they've been closed this whole time. So they haven't seen the light and these pictures are no. amazing. Um, they, they tell so much more, right? So I was able to look at those, but that's when, but I started to, to, to get more into other type of municipal record. So as uh, city directories played a really important role. So those are like Phone books, before phone books, or before people had phones, I always tell my students it's like like Googling somebody without, you know, but like before that, like you literally looked up their last name and it had, those just had so much information. So mm-hmm. they had the name, the first name, last name, uh, they indicated if you were a renter or a homeowner, they indicated where you worked and your address. Those were like a treasure, treasure trove of information about housing, about labor, um, gender dynamics. Because if a woman worked outside the home, they listed her. Mm-hmm. So this is really important. The problem was, is that they're all on like microfilm. They're not text search there's no such thing as text searchable at the time when I was started this, and many uh, researchers have a different set, you know, of tools available to them, which I'm not at all salty about, I promise <laughs> I you know, I was rolling through microfilm looking for Spanish surnames. That's what my process was. Those are like five hundred pages each, right? And for each year. And so I was recording first name, last name, all of that information so that I could get this demographic picture of the of the community. And because I'm an insider in Grand Rapids and I have connections, I can say, well, do you know the Rodriguez's who lived on X street? And my family or other people in the community would say, oh yeah, they were Puerto Rican. Oh yeah, they were Mexican. Mm-hmm. Oh, they were one of the Cuban families we got in the, you know, they were able to, Add to that. And so I started doing those. I also looked at like city accessor files, which is something that I never thought I would, you know, that Mm -hmm. it's not like high on my list of things I thought I would be doing. But those were helpful in helping me to understand the types of houses that people were living in. And so I could see, you know, when the house was built, how much it was valued at and compare that to others in the neighborhood or in different neighborhoods to be able to say very firmly that they were occupying the most dilapidated housing in the city. Right. Those are my city accessor files helped me with that. So I started in that direction. And then in the 1950s and 60s, we start to see more attention to Mexicans and Puerto Rico, Mexicans and Puerto Ricans through the Human Relations Commission. And eventually, as I—that's uh, a an organization that doesn't necessarily have enforcement power, but it's a place that kind of received mm-hmm. any complaints about race, ethnicity, religion, um, uh, discrimination. It's very popular. Many uh, cities around the country in the urban north had them as well. Um, so then I got meeting minutes, and those were those were really helpful. So that felt like I was ushering in um, a whole nother wave. But the problem there was. Unless there was a Mexican on this commission, nobody talked about Mexicans or Puerto Ricans. And so I had I ran into a lot of documents like that, and trying to read into um, when many of the grant documents in Grand Rapids say non-white, who are they really talking about, and how do I, you know, categorize? Where do I draw that line? Is this actually talking about just black folks? Are they talking about both? What's going on here? So those are those are some of the some of the like local archive things i have national federal stuff too but that's kind of the the local scene
0: yeah thank you it's very informative and such a statement for uh or you know it's such a uh celebration of like yeah like the archivist the local archivist is like everything, especially for finding the weird, the weird stuff that you don't, you know, it's not sorted in the particular ways that you expect. And so they are the ones who know the collections. Yeah, it's such a great, it's
2: only them, right? It's only them. There's, you you can have as many finding aids as you want. But unless you have somebody who can read across Mm -hmm. those, it's really difficult.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, So as somebody who's a recent transplant to Grand Rapids, uh, for me, when I was reading your piece, I kept thinking about what the city looks like now. Um, and I keep hearing like anecdotally from people about how much Grand Rapids has changed in the last decade or so. Um, and there are so many institutions trying to do so many things, right? Um, so as somebody who studies, uh, placemaking, I was wondering if you could sort of weigh in on, you know, how these endeavors speak to you. Um, and I'm especially speaking of obviously like Southwest, uh, Grand Rapids sort of around the Roseville Park area, um. New New housing projects, uh, new schools, yeah, so what does that mean? Um,
2: yeah, it's complicated. That's like the short answer. <laughs> uh, the epilogue of my book goes into this kind of in depth and i I spotlight some community activists, and i I'm really taking my cue from them um, as somebody who you know, knows Grand Rapids in this very personal way, in this very formal research way, but also hasn't lived there in over 10 years, it's really hard sometimes to get the pulse of what's happening on the grounds, or it has been, because I've been gone. I've been away. I've been um, graduate school, this tenure track, trying to write the book. And so I've had some really great conversations with people on the ground uh, in these community-centered organizations that have helped to inform my kind of what I'm seeing. One of the things that I think is happening is in Grand Rapids is obviously the issue with gentrification. And we've seen this kind of come, kind of complete its cycle on the Southeast side, right? The Southeast side looks very different than it did when I lived, even 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. Um, But we have some really good activists there who, and uh, kind of, you know, entrepreneurial folks who are trying to get in, make sure that the Black community is represented in the changes that are happening, because for a long time Mm -hmm. they weren't. And I think that it's been long on the minds of people on the Southwest side that this was, you know, coming, the same type of gentrification was going to come for the Southwest side. I remember years ago while I was doing my research for the book, um, Melanie Shell Weiss, who is at Grand Valley. Um, I think she's a, I think she's a dean now. And mm-hmm. at one point she was directing the Coochie Center or the Coochie Office for Local History. And she, she told me like, your book is going to be important because of the gentrification that's happening. And I was like, I couldn't see it. I was like, what do you mean? Like, why would they come here? And she's like, They're coming here already. And it was really a wake up Mm -hmm. call as I had been gone for Grand Rapids and was like missing some parts of what the, this kind of, on the last, you know, years of events. And so I talk at least in the epilogue about the role that communities, the voice that they play in the development and how, how important that needs to be, because, one of the things that we have happened in Grand Rapids is I would call the nonprofit industrial complex. We have, you know, this is something that I, I talk about in the book more at at length is the relationship between Latinos and the city in the 1970s and how the city kind of serves as gatekeepers for Latino uh, social Mm -hmm. mobility. I would very much say in the late, you know, in this 2020 period, uh, nonprofit, the nonprofit industrial complex is now who is holding a lot of the power in how development works and the social mobility for many Latinos in the neighborhood and other immigrants in the neighborhood of the Southwest side plays out, you know, what that looks like for them. And so I tend to, uh, I tend to side with folks on uh, in the community organizations that are asking for, you know, not even just equal say in the process, but as equal partners in developing the process. I think Mm -hmm. Stephanie Rosales at the Granville Avenue Arts and Humanities Center Mm -hmm. has been wonderful in articulating the needs of the community as central to the, uh, not just uh, what the plans, not just like options for the community to pick, but mm-hmm. how the plans are even made to begin with. It's, I think she's the one who has said, you know, it's not enough to come and say, okay, which one do you like more to the community and call that a community partnership? You need to come to us first and talk yeah. to us about what we need and how you can help. That's how that relationship should work, should work. And so when I see it, I'm still like, we're, I mean, my everybody is like shocked. It's, it's, uh, it's really, it's kind of disassociating, to be honest, because it, it's so different. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm also, at the other hand, really excited about the possibilities that people have and the cha- some of the changes that have come. So I'm very excited about the school. I'm very excited about Southwest Community, uh, South the Academia Bilingue, Southwest mm-hmm. Middle and Southwest Elementary. I worked for Southwest Community Campus in undergrad. Um, I had family who worked there, a family who went there. So this, the school has, is like, I have a very personal relationship with it. But also as a researcher who's, the book looks at education in Latinos, parents have been asking for bilingual, bicultural, biliterate K-12 education for their students since the 1970s. So for me, the uh, high school, the middle and high school is, you know, of a dream of over four decades come true. And in, within those four decades, we lost at least a generation of Latino young people who were pushed out of our school systems. So for me, I'm like thrilled about it, but I also understand that if gentrification continues where I know so many of the new bills in those areas are supposed to be for lower income folks. They're not all for lower income folks. Mm-hmm. And so what happens to the housing market around that area? So I'm thrilled about the school. But one thing that Stephanie pointed out is we have people there who are worried they're not going to be able to stay in the neighborhood long enough to send their kids to the school. And so it's it's really complicated. It's really, really complicated. Um, I tell people when I wrote the epilogue, like I cried, I cried like Mm. the first 10 drafts of the epilogue because it was just, it's so complex, right? I'm so happy that the neighborhood is getting the resources it deserves. So scared that they won't have them for long. Mm. That's what scares me.
0: Well, um, you know, you know, thinking about sort of the importance of your research, uh, and I want to be clear, you know, we've been talking about your essay, but you do have, you have a book coming out mm-hmm. soon as well, right? In February? Yes. Yeah. Making the Mexican City, Migration, place making and Activism in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is uh, coming out with the University of Illinois Press, which is great. Congratulations. So, Thank I mean, you. more of this conversation in the future, but I'm curious, um... What should listeners of Heartland History, this podcast, sort of take away? You know, what, what do you hope um, this work helps do to continue to shape the field of Midwestern studies?
2: I think that one of the things that this chapter does and the whole anthology, in fact, is that it helps to normalize Latino presence in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Right, right now, the assumption is still that Latinos are the other, the, are the perpetual foreigner and I hope that when scholars and um, other researchers of the Midwest take on their projects, that they consider all of the factors that make the Midwest what it is. That the Midwest is not necess- is not, and has not been, like the architect of white mid-middle mm-hmm. class um, values and play a white middle class place, right? It has long been a place that's home to African-Americans, that's home to Latinos, that's Mm -hmm. home to Asians, that's home to a variety of different peoples. And if your study is only taking into account white folks in the area, you might not be looking hard enough at the Mm -hmm. other dynamics that make your research a a possibility. So if you're studying labor or you're studying, studying farms in Michigan, if you have not talked about Latino labor, you're missing a piece. If you're studying mm-hmm. cities and you're not taking uh, taking seriously racial formation in urban places, you're missing a very important lens to understanding the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that what it, this does is it continues to normalize Latino presence there, but I also hope that for Latinos and for other people who are not seen as normative in the Midwest, I hope that this work can help provide them a sense of belonging. That's really why I've you know, undertaken this work and in, in my other research as well is because there's so many places that we're told in one way or another that we do not belong, that we mm-hmm. are somehow here by mistake, by accident, that we have no rightful claim uh, to belonging in these places. And so I hope that, other, you know, folks who are on the kind of the outside on the margins can see that we have long histories here. We've made plenty of contributions uh, to these places. But just our, our presence alone and the ways that people of color and other marginalized people have found to live whole lives in this region is not just impressive, but it makes the region what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Belonging or a sense of belonging is really important to the work that I'm doing, and I'm actually embarking on a new project that is not necessarily um, an academic, scholarly article trajectory. But I'm working with Nora Salas in the Cucci Office for Local History, and with the Latino Community Coalition in Grand Rapids. Both uh, Veronica Quintino-Aranda and Erica Van Dyke, all four of us, are working together on a Latino historical marker project. Mm. So I also sit on the Michigan Historical Commission. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is my second term. Part of what we do is we oversee the Michigan Historical Marker Program where communities can apply uh, with documentation and rationale to as to why a site in their hometown and their community is worthy of a Michigan historical marker. Those are those green plaques. They're like Mm -hmm. three and a half by four and a half gold letters. Most people are like, what's a marker? And if you say, you describe it, they're like, oh yeah, I've seen that. I know what that is. (laughs) You know, they're like on churches or state buildings. Like we have Mm -hmm. Lansing, we have so many because we're the capital. Well, in a review of the program of the 1,800 markers that we have, only two of them mention Mexicans. None of them mention Puerto Ricans or other Latinos. And the Mm -hmm. two that do mention Mexicans mention uh, Mexican artists who are in uh, Brooklyn, Michigan, of all places, who made a sculpture and returned to Mexico. So there are no markers about Latino communities that have Mm -hmm. formed here and have been here for over a hundred years. And while the Michigan Historical Commission is looking into ways to amend that and other rashers in the marker program in Detroit, myself as a commissioner, as a scholar, who's interested in this as a Latina from Grand Rapids uh, and the other women that I'm working with are undertaking a project to uh, start to make a sustainable way for Latinos in West Michigan, and Grand Rapids in particular, to record their history, to uh, understand its value and its worth, and then to apply for historical markers. Hmm. And so over the next two years, we'll be working together to uh, work uh to solicit feedback from the community on some of the places. We have three places we'd like to propose, but we'd also like to see what places Latinos in the community would like to propose Mm -hmm. for historical markers. Many of the ones that we're looking at are in the Granville Avenue neighborhood and so we're hoping that these markers can work you know double triple duty and that one they can signal to the community that your history is important your history is, has been here for over 50 years but that's the requirement of the marker program uh, we also hope it sends a message to grand rapids kind of writ large that the contributions are important and worthy Uh, But we're also looking for what we can do with the information that we come up with for um, the applications, because they are rigorous, uh, they're rigorous applications. You have to come up with primary source documentation, oral histories. So what might we do with that? And so we're interested in working with. K-12 settings, especially if, you know, we're not there yet, but the Southwest system we're interested in working with, um, maybe websites in the future, just something that we can continually, that we have that can continually engage the community in recording those histories that are important because if it wasn't for Gordon Olson taking down those histories, we wouldn't have this record in our archive. And our, our, you know, we have many stories that we keep in our homes and those are really important too, but we also wanna have them in our archives for future mm-hmm. generations to have, to be able to access. And it also continues to build our record and our legacy, to add to our legacy here in Grand Rapids.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. I, uh, Rami, do you have anything else that you, That's Mm. not a code word, I just didn't know if you had any other questions. (laughs) No, no questions. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, well, Dr. Fernandez-Jones, this has been an absolutely great conversation. um, uh, And thank you and and congratulations on the forthcoming book.
2: Thank you you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you both.